And welcome. A little stuffed up Diane Kamikaze sending you a podcast. We'll be talking to Bob Surin today, author of Crate Digger, an obsession with punk records. The original broadcast date of this was July 9th, 2015. The record's been out for about a year and a half. And uh, you'll hear us talking about songs, and I decided not to cut the, uh, the dialogue and the conversation we were having, because on the regular radio program, and you can look up the playlist from July 9th, 2015, and listen to the whole show and listen to the songs we're talking about. He just has such great descriptions and what these songs mean to him that I didn't want to cut out all of it. So, um, podcast for you today, and uh, Diane Kamikaze for WFMU. Bob Surin, S-U-R-E-N, is the name of the author. And the book is called Crate Digger. Stay tuned. My guest is on the line, and he's calling. So I'm going to put him on. Let's see. Hello, is this Bob? This is Bob. Diane, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. This is day 11 of my 24-city whirlwind publicity tour for uh, my new book, Crate Digger. It is. I'm in a... Raleigh, North Carolina today. I'm sitting in the living room of Scott Williams, who's the guitar player from uh, Double Negative, and he's out running some errands. I'm sitting here hanging out with his dog on his couch, and <sighs> uh, Raleigh's a great-looking city. It's my first time here. Awesome. And Scott Williams is our volunteer director here, so I'm sitting in the room next to a different Scott Williams. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> there, you know, uh, Scott doesn't have a dog here, but a couple other uh, station members do have dogs here. So um, I, want, I want to uh, welcome you, and I do want to just tell the listeners that you are uh, Bob Shuren, and, uh, my, he, who is my guest for today. And uh, you certainly did introduce yourself fabulously. Crate Digger is your book, and it is your first book. Is that right? It is my first book. I'm working on a couple of more, but Crate Digger is, um, I think it's the most important thing I've ever put my name on. It is and that's saying a memoir. A lot. Yeah. Hmm. It is a memoir of 30 years in uh, punk rock, as told through my record collection. Yes, and I love the approach. I absolutely love the approach. I mean, the titles of all the chapters are pretty much names of albums. You know. Yes, and <laughs> and, and the, the chapters themselves don't necessarily talk about the records that much. Right, yeah. One, one reviewer gave it a very good review, but he said, I wonder why he didn't tell anybody what the bad brains sound like. Is it because he, everybody knows what the bad brains sound like? And no, it's not that. I wrote this book so that it would be um, accessible to anybody in the whole world, even people who have never heard the bad brains. What the bad brains sound like is not relevant to the uh, theme of that that little story. So this book is, it is a punk rock book, but it's not just for punk rockers. It's written for anybody because the important parts of the book are big universal themes. I write about love and friendship and death and loss and success and failure. It's about things that I got right and things that I got wrong. And it's stuff that anybody can relate to. I gave it to a 70-year-old co-worker 
and she read it, and she said, I love this book, but I've never heard of any of these bands, so I went on YouTube to watch some of them, and I don't like them. But <laughs> uh, How funny. But, yeah, yeah, and I gave it to my mom, and my mom read it, and my mom was like, wow, there's a whole bunch of stuff I didn't know about you, and, and you write very clearly, and I don't know what these bands are either, but I understand what you're talking about. So the, a lot of people think that when I was telling people that this book is coming out and people haven't read it yet, they're thinking it's going to be like some kind of collector's guide that, Right, 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 trivia, right. Trivia like, oh, there's 500 copies of this record on red vinyl, but it's not about that at all. Right. Really, it's a, it's it's a, it's a life story. It absolutely is, and that's what I really love about the book. It's um and and you know as myself and I'm a you know a certainly a huge music collector as well. There's certain records that remind you of certain periods in your life because there's something that you turn to to listen to to either feel better or to relate to something better or to remind you of something. And that's, I think, what it is. It's very, very relatable. Yes, as I say in the introduction of the book, it's, it's intended to be like you're sitting in a living room with somebody you've just met, and you're flipping through their record collection, and as you stop at each record, you go, oh, geez, this reminds me of when I was in college. This reminds me of my first job. This reminds me of my first girlfriend or this reminds me of the time I moved or something good something bad it's memories associated with those songs and the original title for the book which I think is a little more accurate the publisher convinced me to change it to crate digger the original title I think really hits the nail on the head the original title was supposed to be recollections of my record collection mm. but they they thought that crate digger had more pizzazz or something, so we changed it. That hmm. was one of the few things I had to bend on. Oh, interesting, because I think that that's yeah. actually, that, that, that that is a good title as well. And you're right about, you know, you're flipping through the record collection and you're showing somebody something, and then the visual of a record leads to a conversation about an actual moment in real life, you know. Yeah. And I think, I think what makes it so realistic, the book, and so relatable, is that it's not in chronological order. It doesn't go from 1983 until 2013 in a straight line. It jumps all over the place. And some people said that that got a little confusing at first, but then they caught on. But, you know, when you meet somebody, when you're, when you're having a long conversation with someone you've just met or somebody you've known for a long time, you don't tell them your life story in chronological order. You go, well, when I was in college, I did this. And when I was a kid, I broke my arm. And, you know, my first car was a Camaro. And you go all over the place, and that's mm-hmm. why the book goes all over the place. It's supposed to be really casual. It's supposed to be really conversational. And like I said before, it's about the big universal themes. It's not strictly about collector nerd stuff. No, oh, it is. And, and I know for myself, I have met some of my turned out to be like lifelong best friends while record shopping. Like, oh, excuse me, oh, you cut it, like, you know, like, oh, oh are you going to get that record that I have? Well, I have two copies of that, blah, 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 and you start talking, and then, you know, like, records end up being that, that connecting thing, and I love how, that you use records to connect the rest of your life, and it, it, and it, and it would be, and, and as a record collector, I would like to say it'd be really nice for record collectors to lighten up and to know that it's not just about the records. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's your life right now, this second. Everybody sit yeah. and look at your surroundings and go, wow, I'm really here. Like, look at your all, hands, you know. All the big milestones in my life, all of the major crossroads in my life, they've all somehow have been related to music. And 
it could have been about anything. If I didn't get into punk rock, maybe I would have got into stamp collecting, or maybe I would have got into tennis or something, and I could have written a book from that perspective as well. It just so happened that it was punk rock that piqued my interest in, and sucked me in for 30 years. Mm-hmm. So these are the stories and these are the characters that I met because of the punk rock scene. And I'm really glad that it went that way because, uh, I mean, what, a, what an amazing bunch of experiences I've had in my life. Not all of them good. Some of them really incredible. I've gotten to do things that a lot of people never get to do. I got to go to Brazil because of a punk rock band. A lot of people never get to go to Brazil. Mm. I got to drive all over the country. I got to make records. Most people never get to get to play their own music on a record. I got to own a record store. I got to meet some of my heroes. And all that would have never been possible if I had not dove headfirst into this music that that I just love so much. Mm. Well, and and you're speaking from a personal perspective, but you were really important in, you know, Florida punk history. And I mean, still are, I shouldn't say were as a past tense, but you provided a record store, a label, you know, you did so much of the groundwork and foundation for so many people. I mean, that's, that's what your actions also, you know, brought in there. I mean, you're you had a finger or a hand in every. Um, <laughs> that sounded really weird. <laughs> I, I know what you're talking about. I tried to do everything because punk rock seemed like more than entertainment to me. It always felt like a cause. It felt like music with a mission, and I wanted to get behind the mission. I said for many years that I was self-employed, or people believed that I was self-employed. But the truth is, my boss was punk rock. I worked for punk rock for 30 years. I did everything I could to push punk rock as a, as a youth culture or as a subculture or whatever you want to call it. I did everything I could to make punk rock a better place. I consider punk rock my family and my home. And I tried to do everything I could to make it better. Mm-hmm. Well, and you got yeah. it. You got it out there. I mean, you're pivotal in getting a lot of Florida bands not staying in Florida. You know, you were pivotal in having Florida residents, you know, with your your contacts and your store and your distro to actually hear more music. And you know, like what what were you listening to when you heard the your first punk record? Like, what was the record that? So two questions. What were you listening to before, and then what was the record that was like your gateway record? What I was listening to before the summer of 1983, and the summer of 1983 is when I got turned on to punk rock. It was between my eighth grade and my ninth grade year. And up till then, my favorite bands were ACDC and Blue Oyster Cult and Cheap Trick and Black Sabbath and maybe the Scorpions. And that summer, I was handed a mixtape by my oldest sister's boyfriend. And he said, check this out. And he just kind of walked away. And there was no <laughs> track listing on this mixtape. Mm. I didn't know who any of the bands were. I didn't know what any of the songs were called. He just gave me this tape, and it blew my mind. And I didn't know what it was, and I played it for a bunch of people. And then I brought it to school, and I played it for this guy in my school who's a punk rocker. And he identified all these bands for me, and he told me straight up, he's like, yeah, this is punk stuff, and that's the Circle Jerks. That's the Dead Kennedys, that's Agent Orange, that's the Minutemen, that's the Clash, that's the Buzzcocks, mm. that's, the, that's the Gonads, that's Really Red, that's the Freeze, that's Roach Motel. All these bands were on this great, great mixtape, DOA, wow. and, and I, I, the feeders were on it, and I don't know where this mixtape came from. I never 
gave that tape back, the guy and my sister broke up. And I don't think I saw him again after that, and I never had a chance to thank him for the tape. But just being handed this random mixtape on a random afternoon by some guy that I never saw again changed my life. Hmm. So uh, I heard punk rock, and I said, this is it. I can't listen to the Scorpions anymore. I just heard the Dead Kennedys, and that is way, way more intense. It's way more important, and it's funny, and it's angry, and I want to be part of that. It seemed like something that I could do. The Scorpions seemed, you know, like pie in the sky, almost like heroes way up there. And then I heard the Circle Jerks, and I saw what the Circle Jerks looked like, and they looked like me. And I thought, I could do this. And not long after getting that mixtape, I started my first band. Hmm. Yeah. Of many bands. I've been in probably, I don't know how many bands in my life. I don't know. Some of them might not count as bands. But, I mean, I farted. I, I, farted. I started my first <laughs> band in 1985, and I played music pretty consistently from 85 until 2013 with a couple of lulls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you had your label for, like, 15, 18 for, years, something mm, like that? How many years? Burrito Records, the first release was 1991. The last release was 2008. I'm not good at math. I think that's 18 years or something. Yeah, almost know. 20 years. Yeah. I can't subtract. So, um, yeah, I did uh, 27 releases, and it wasn't the most prolific label, because when I first started it, I only had enough money to do one record a year. And my theory was, I'm going to do one record every year, and it's going to be a good record. I'm going to put the whole year into it. And then when it became more of a business and less of a passion, I started putting out things more regularly because people were demanding new products. People were calling me up and saying, when's the new Burrito Records release coming out? And I'd say, I don't know. Uh, you know, whenever I hear something that I want. But uh, the people were starting to ask me, can I subscribe to your label? Can I send you $100 for the next 10 releases or something? And I, wow. And I thought, no, no, you can't do that because I don't know what they're going to be. It might be 10 years before I put out 10 more records. But I did start taking the label more seriously starting around 95 or 96 is when I started actively seeking out stuff. Before that, I just put out whatever floated my way that caught my ear. And then after that, I did start hunting for bands. And there were only a couple of bands that turned me down over the years that I approached to be on Burrito, but most of them were bands that I was in or bands that I was friends with. Was the concept ever to be a Florida label, strictly? It was. It was. When I first started it, I wanted it to be what Discord was to D.C., oh, what wow. Danger House was to L.A., and Burrito Records 1, 2, and 3 are all Florida, and Burrito Records number 4 is a, a split record, so on one side is a Florida band, on the other side is a band from Massachusetts. And then after that, I thought, oh, well, it's not going to be just Florida anymore, so the gloves are off. I can do anything I want. Mm. And the fifth record was the H100s from Ohio, and then I did bands from Peru. I did bands from England, um, bands from all over the United States. I don't think I did any other foreign bands besides Peru and England. But, yeah, after that, I was just like, the scope is wide open. As long as it's punk rock, as long as it's something that I like, I'm going to do it. And I did a lot of original bands. I did the first release for several bands. And I did a few reissues. And towards the end, I was doing a lot of reissues. And I didn't do that to cash in. I know there's a lot of money in the reissue racket. But I did it because I loved these bands. And I thought their music was going to die. I thought it would be lost to history forever if I didn't find these band members and get them to hand the master tapes and me to physically restore them and put them out. And I'm very proud of those reissues, like Gay Cowboys and Bondage, mm -hmm. Attack A Front All. 
and uh, Roach Motel and Hated Youth and, and all the other reissue things that I did. Um, during that time, a lot of labels were kind of chasing after reissues as surefire money, which I think is a little bit sad. And yeah, the money was good on those reissues, but more importantly, I did it with a lot of love. I did it because I thought Hated Youth is a great band that not enough people have heard about. Mm-hmm. I want people to hear Hated Youth. And that was one of my most popular titles. Oh, really? Yeah. The Hated Youth 7-inch that I put out. Uh, it sold. I just sold 3,000 copies really fast, and people kept asking for it, but I never made more because the printer lost the cover art. Oh, wow. And to, yeah, and I oh. didn't want to redesign the cover. So now that Hated Youth record, I made 3,000 of them, which I thought would be enough to last forever. Some of those Hated Youth 7 inches that I was selling for 3 bucks in 2001, I think that came out. Mm-hmm. Some of those are selling for like $25, and it's been bootlegged. It's all over the Internet. It was bootlegged on CD. And uh, I'm, I'm just glad the music is still out there and keeping the music alive. That's all I care about. When I did the Gay Cowboys and Bondage reissue, the singer of the band Milo told me, he said, I hope you sell a million copies. He said, I don't want a penny for it. Just get the music out there. We made this music for people to hear it. And that's what it's all about. You, when you're in a band, you make, a mu- you make music to be heard. And when bands do these limited edition 300 copy things, I get mad because they're making an instant collector's item, and they're, they're kind of doing something snobby and elitist, and I don't care for that. I think punk rock should be democratic, and I think your record should be limited to as many as people want to buy. I think you should keep pressing it as long as it's economically feasible. That's what I always tried to do. I, I always hoped that my records would sell two, three, five thousand copies or more, and when they sold less than that, I was kind of bummed. I was like, this is a good record. Why didn't 5,000 people buy it? Right. So, yeah. And and that's a um, so that's an interesting approach in that a lot of independent labels you know can only afford to make this many and then it goes out of goes out of print. I like that you sort of did as large pressings as you could. Do you have are are there is there somewhere where there's a a bunch of burrito records that haven't fully sold out yet? No, I sold off everything I could when I went out of business. I think Abolition Records took a few pieces left from me. I did a large, large pressing of that Hated Youth Roach Motel split LP. Mm-hmm. There's probably a couple hundred of those left over, and I left those to a DIY uh, group of kids in Tampa. And I said, take these couple hundred records, they're good records, take them on tour, sell them on tour and have some extra money, trade them with other record labels, do something productive with these, and just you know keep all the money. Mm. Just don't let the, don't let these records go to waste. I think I pressed four thousand copies of the Hated Youth Roach Motel record. Oh wow! And when I went out of business, there were a couple hundred left, and I just gave them to these kids and said, "Do something good with them and and put the money in your pocket." And I think they've done that. I'm sure they have. A while. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome and very noble, also. I mean, I know. Well, it was that or th- it was that or throw them in a dumpster. Yeah. No. So, no. So it was it was it was. I don't know, maybe more practical than noble. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, you're giving somebody a gift, and uh, well, there are you know when you're when you're getting rid of everything, um, and I right. haven't really done that in my lifetime or not in a long time. But even when I purge or you know it's a season and it's kind of time to get rid of stuff, it's like you get with the momentum, and at first you do sort of start thinking like, oh, somebody can use this, somebody can use that, and then after a while, it's like. F this, I am just throwing this out, I'm throwing this out, like you're in the momentum of 
having new or having nothing or having the blank space or, you know, whatever it is. So I can I tell you, it feels really good. The last day my record store was in business was in October of 2008. And after the show was over, I said, everything on the shelves is just $2. Whatever wow. the price is, everything's 2 bucks, And people were... People almost wiped me out. There was hardly anything left. What was left at the end of the night would have fit in the trunk of a car. Wow. And I, donate, and I ended up donating that to somebody. But then people started asking for the things on the walls. And and I had, I couldn't, I couldn't take it with me. So people just said, can I have this poster? Can I have this picture? Can I have this thing? Hmm. I just started saying yes, yes, yes. And, and after the first five or six pieces came down and I started seeing the bare walls, People just stopped asking me and just started grabbing stuff. <laughs> People were just tearing little pieces of my record store off the wall, and I didn't care at all. I just sat back and I laughed, and it felt really good mm. to see all that stuff go to a good home. That's very brave. Yeah. Really? It was, God, it was an emotional day. Yeah, I'm sure. And so then where did your travels take you after you, uh, you closed the store? Well, the store closed in 2008, and from 2008 until 2000. 13, I tried working out of 12 or 13. I tried working out of a small warehouse and I had a home office with my computer. And for about four years there, I tried to make a living selling bootleg punk rock t-shirts. And I had a very small 300 square foot warehouse that had no air conditioning and no, no frills whatsoever. I had a home office in my living room. I took orders over the internet. I went to this hot warehouse and I printed t-shirts and I put them in the mail. And I did that every day for four years. That was how I tried to make a living. Hmm. And I made a slightly better living doing that than running a record store just because the overhead was so much lower. But it wasn't enough. It still wasn't a real job. And I didn't feel entirely good making bootleg T-shirts. Some of the bands I got permission from, some of the bands I did not get permission from. And it's a gray area. Some people say, hey, it's okay. It's some band that broke up 20 years ago. Who cares? And some people, some people kind of came down on me for that. And I understand that too. A lot of people gave me hell for bootlegging t-shirts. I understand. I was just talking to a guy who just toured Australia and he ran into the guitar player from an Australian band. And I had bootlegged this Australian band's t-shirts and I had actually only sold two t-shirts by this band before the band caught up with me. And that was in 2008 or so, and that band is still talking trash on me. Mm. You know, I made two T-shirts seven years ago or something, and these guys are still bad-mouthing me because they thought that I ripped them off. You know, I understand, you know, the it's not the, the number you sell, it's the principle. And, yeah, I thought I was going to just do this until somebody told me I couldn't do it anymore. Right. Yeah. I mean, that is a, it is an interesting inquiry. You know, I mean, because yeah. everybody just hears the word bootleg and is like, oh, and, and if you are really, like you said, you sold two shirts. So maybe yeah. that's somebody maybe that did it or didn't get the band any more fans. But, right, right. Um, but I guess it was different. It was more like a that was a more strict, like cut and dried business for you. It wasn't like you were hanging out at the shop and listening to new stuff right. and interacting with people in the way that you had been. It was purely economical. The The record store... When I opened the record store, I thought the record store would be purely economical. I thought it was just just really a job for me. Wow, really? When I, opened the, when I opened the record store, I thought, you know, I love the mail order and I love the record label. I thought the store itself 
would just be kids would come in and buy a NoFX CD, and at the end of the day, I'd lock the door and go home. Mm. But after but after a year or two, I started making real bonds with these these young kids who were my customers. We started having nice conversations, and I became their friends. And some kids said I was like their dad. And I used to have a couch and a TV at the record store, and kids used to come in after school and sit on the couch and watch The Simpsons with me. And after a while, I thought, this isn't just a business. This is kind of a community. This is a home for some of these people. And I am kind of like the dad, you know? Yeah. So what, what at first I thought was just going to be a commercial venture, the store part of Sound Idea, it did become an extended family for me. And that's why it was so hard for me to close it in 2008. I thought, I'm not going to see these people who are my friends, these people who are my extended family anymore. We're going to be losing what was the home for the scene. I mean, Sound Idea was, was where you went to hang out and make friends and and meet people and to find out what was happening. And I thought, I probably should have closed Sound Idea a couple of years earlier than I, than I did, but I felt guilty about closing it, even though I was struggling financially. I thought, if I close this record store, it's going to kill the scene, and people are never going to see each other again, and friendships are going to suffer. And I also thought, I don't know what else to do. What other skills do I have? What can I do with my life if I don't work in a record store? So I was terrified about closing that store, and I kept it open until it was just a financial impossibility. Mm. Probably should have closed it a little earlier. Wow. Did, did you yeah. start doing the bootleg T-shirts while you had the store? I did start doing the bootleg T-shirts while I was doing the store. But after the store closed and the bootleg shirts became my only source of income, I really doubled down on it. I started making more and more designs, and I really pursued that. And the bootleg shirt for me... It really was just a business. There was mm-hmm. not a lot of love in that for me. It was just like, I have to survive now, and this is a skill that I have. Mm. And there were times that I thought, wow, I went to college, and I have a college degree, and my job is going to a warehouse and, and printing black and white punk shirts. And I thought, man, I really messed up my life. I think I've made some bad decisions. And for four years, you know, I scraped by just by selling t-shirts to kids who just want to look cool. And I kind of hated that because I was never into the fashion aspect of punk. I, I would wear some band t-shirts once in a while. But I always thought that the, the t-shirts were kind of trivial. But I thought, well, there's good money in this, and people want to do it, and I know how to do it. So I'm going to do it until I can't do it anymore. So I, I, was, I was a little bit bitter that I was selling that I was selling more T-shirts than records towards the end. I thought, well, if these kids want fashion, I'm going to give them fashion. And mm. at one time, I played around with the idea of calling the T-shirt business the kids will have their T-shirts, but <laughs> I didn't call it that. I called it something else. <laughs> yeah, you know, it bummed me out. One day, I was at my record store, and I went, "Huh, it was a it was a pretty good day of sales today. What did I sell today?" I sold no CDs, two pieces of vinyl, and 17 T-shirts. Oh, I get it. People want to look punk. They don't want to listen to punk. And that made me very, very bitter and jaded. And I said, well, damn it, I'm just going to give these kids as many T-shirts as they can stick up their butt, and (laughs) and I'm going to stop selling records. Mm. Yeah, it was was really, it was a turning point for me that day, and I became embittered that day. Yeah. And when did you start writing the book? I started writing the book in 2012. I was at work one day. I had a part-time job at this comic book store 
And one day at work at the comic book store, we heard the Neil Young song, uh, Heart of Gold, came over the radio. And that got me thinking that that was the first song I ever learned how to play on guitar. I had this really cool guitar teacher in Stewart named Glenn Weaver. And when I went in for my first lesson, he said, what can you do? Show me what you know. And I showed him a couple chords that I knew. And he said, okay, this is what I want you to do. I want you to learn this Neil Young song, Heart of Gold. I thought, man, I don't want to learn this stupid old hippie song. I want to learn how to play <laughs> World Up My Ass by the Circle Jerk. Right. And he said, he said, if you learn how to play Heart of Gold, the next time you come in, I'll teach you how to play World Up My Ass. So I said, okay. So I went home, and I learned how to play Heart of Gold. And the next time I went in, I showed it to him, and then he taught me how to play the Circle Jerks. Nice. And this Glenn was a really cool guy, and he passed away when I was in college. And now every time I hear that Neil Young song, I think of Glenn and what a nice, cool person he was and a good guitar teacher and good guitar player. So I wrote a little tribute to Glenn, and I posted it on my Facebook page with a video for the Neil Young song, Heart of Gold, and people just loved it. Wow. And then a couple of days later, I wrote what became the Dictator's Chapter in my book, and I posted that on Facebook, and people were like, that's really cool, too. And then I did a couple more of these recollections, and I posted them on Facebook, and after I posted six or seven of them, people said, your writing is too good to just be a Facebook post. Hmm. Why, don't you make a, why don't you make a book? And I didn't know how to make a book, and I had a friend in Tampa who sat down with me one day and said, look, I think you got a book in you. Here's how to organize it. And he gave me the idea of writing a book in the form of a record collection, which is what I've done. The chapters are all alphabetized in the book by record title. So each chapter in the book is the title of an important record in my life, as we discussed earlier. And I had a friend who's a bit younger than me who actually gave me the structure for the book, and as soon as I saw that, I said, I can do this, and I got to work. And I wrote casually for about three or four months, and then when I saw the book taking shape, I busted my butt, and I really uh, forced myself to write almost every day for another two or three months. So a total of six months, maybe six months of half-assing it and six months of going really hard, uh, excuse me, about three months of half-assing it, about three months of going hardcore, and I'd written an entire book. And then I tried to sell it. And like I told you before, I wrote the book in a way that's relatable to anybody. It doesn't, you don't have to be a punk rocker to love this book. And I tried to sell it to big publishing houses because I thought this is a book that a lot of people would be into. So I tried for several months to sell it to big publishers, and I got some positive feedback, but nobody wanted to do it. Then I got despondent. I didn't do anything about it for a while. And then somebody gave me a kick in the butt to try the independent publishers. And after just four days of trying the indie route, I got a contract. I had a list of independent publishers that I wanted to hit up. And one day I skipped about four names down the list, and I sent an email to Microcosm Publishing. And in about 90 minutes, I had a signed contract. Wow. Yeah, it came together super fast. And the Microcosm people have been super-duper supportive. They've given me everything I wanted, and they're helping with promo, and they love me because I like doing radio shows like this, mm-hmm. and because I like to tour, and I like to talk to blogs, and if they ask me to do something, I do it by the end of the day. They're like, wow, I've never worked with anybody like this. So <laughs> I like to work. I like to stay busy. And I think I can make writing and talking at least a part-time job. If I could do this full-time, if I could get paid for being Bob Surin, I will do that. Mm. And uh, so. you used to have a radio show, didn't you? I did. I had a podcast. I actually had two podcasts. When I was running the record store, I had a podcast called Sound Idea Net Radio. And then after the record store closed, and I took a, a little break from that, I did another podcast called The Punk Rock Record Party, 
which was much better. And I'm not doing that anymore. But it's still online. If you go to uh, punkrockrecordparty.blogspot.com, you can download 46 hours, 46 one-hour episodes of me playing some of my favorite music and talking about it. And there's some uh, comedy, and there's some prank phone calls to, like, Wadi from The Exploited and Jello Biafra. <laughs> and there are, there are fake commercials for, like, um, like, there's, like, a fake commercial for, like, a butthole whitener and all kinds of things like that. So you should go to uh, punkrockrecordparty.blogspot.com and download all 46 episodes, put them on your iPod, and you'll have something to listen to every day for the next month or so. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That's really cool. So let's see, Bob is giving the listeners a, uh, a gift the way he was given a uh, mixtape many, yeah. many, many years and, ago. And I've, and I've been talking with the publisher. They, they want me to do another podcast. And if I do, I don't think it's going to be a weekly because it takes so much time to put together a podcast. I think if I decide to do another podcast, it'll be maybe a monthly podcast. And I've also decided that it wouldn't be strictly limited to punk rock. I would do other kinds of music. And I, it, I might do a little more talking. It might be a little more topical. So I'm playing around with that idea. Right now I'm very busy. I'm in the middle of this tour, and I want to plan a couple more tours. So when things settle down a little bit, I think I might start doing a podcast. When I return from this tour on July 23rd, I'm going into a recording studio in Austin, Texas, and I'm making an audiobook version of Crate Digger. Oh, wow. And, yeah, and we got most of the bands in the book have donated songs. So it'll be like a mixtape within an audiobook. So I will read the chapter on Minor Threat, and then you'll hear a Minor Threat song. Nice. I'll read a chapter about MDC, and then you'll hear an MDC song. It's going to be like that. we got some really awesome bands who have just given us songs who just want to be involved in this, Minor Threat being the biggest one. Mm. We also have some smaller bands like Gay Cowboys and Bondage and Hated Youth. And I'm just really thrilled with the way this thing has come together. That's super. And I wanted to ask you, because you're on tour, and when bands are on tour, it's like they're... Are you selling your your books on Yeah, the tour? that's my only source of income on well, this tour. That's what I was going to ask, because I guess I thought yeah. if it was being published by somebody else, I didn't know if it's already in the bookstore or if you are... Oh. So your revenue is your is the book then? Yeah, it is in bookstores and record stores, and they seem to be doing well with it. Mm -hmm. But when the book came out, they gave me 200 copies, and I've since purchased an additional 100 from them at a very good rate. And I left Austin with a trunk load of books, and I'm doing 23 readings and four radio shows and a panel discussion and a DJ night in 24 days. I'm really busy. Mm. I'm not getting paid for any of these events. Uh, My only source of income is selling the books. Right. And so far, it's been going incredibly well. I can't believe how many people are buying these books, but it's like every night that I speak, 50% of the audience will buy the book when I'm done talking. So like in, um, in Houston, I think we had 35 people, and I think I sold 18 books. Wow. And in, New, yeah, and in New Orleans, I think we had 30 people, and I sold 15 books. Perfect. So every night, it's like half the crowd buys a book, and the books are $15 a piece, and that gas in my car. And it put some new tires on my car back in Tampa. I got new tires on the store. How often does a band get to get new tires on tour? <laughs> right. Not very often. Not very often. Only if they're but forced tour, into it. This is the easiest tour I've ever done. It was a snap to book. The drives have been easy, and the response has been way beyond what I thought. Mm-hmm. Before I left for tour, I bought a bunch of cans of beans and a can opener. So 
So I have a big bag of canned food in my trunk just in case money got tight. But so far, money's been really good, and people have been taking me to fancy restaurants, and it's been cool. I've been getting a hero's <laughs> welcome in every town I've been to oh, so that's far. Cool. It, feels, it feels so nice. Mm, that's excellent. It feels, uh, and it feels really good. And we should yeah. mention that tonight you're going to be at Sorry State Records in Raleigh. Yeah, I'll be at Sorry State Records in Raleigh at uh, 8 o'clock. And then tomorrow I will be at Chop Suey Books in uh, Richmond, Virginia. And the day after that I will be at Crooked Beat in Washington, D.C. I'm a different city every single day. Yeah, that's super. And um, the uh, Mike, uh, not Mike, Bob's. I was looking at Microcosm. Uh, the the tour list is on the microcosmpublishing.com website. You sure is, or you could be my friend on Facebook, and I've been doing like daily updates. If, if, I, if it's not too overwhelming for you, you could be on my Facebook friend, and I send pictures and, and little information about where I'm going to be and what I'm doing every day. Nice. So nice. I, I hope I'm not overloading anybody's news feed too bad. And we want uh, somebody wants to know how Bob's Basset Hounds are doing. My Basset Hounds passed away. Oh. Uh, my wife and I separated in 2013. Mm. We divorced in, uh, excuse me, we separated in 2012. We divorced in 2013. I was not able to take the dogs with me. I had to leave the dogs behind with my wife. These dogs were like um, our children. We decided not to have children. We decided to have dogs. And I couldn't take them with me when we separated, so I left them to her. And in April of 2014, Edgar had to be put down. He had cancer. He was 14 years old. And then a month later, his brother, Oliver, had to be put down. He also had cancer. So both those boys lived to the ripe old age of 14. They died a month apart from each other, and they had a really good life. And everybody loved them. Mm, awesome. Oh, I'm sorry that that update was not as... Uh, yeah. But Well, they had a good life, and 14 is a, is a long run for a basset hound. Those guys usually go 10 or 12 years. Wow, really? Those yeah, those dogs were spoiled to death. We just loved them. <laughs> we treated them like kids. They came to the record store with me every day for eight years. Oh, really? And, oh, yeah. Every oh. There's a picture in the book of them at the record store. That is super cool. And wow. People would come in and pet them. Mm. Yeah, everybody loves them except for my landlord. I think there's, <laughs> there's, a little, there's a little piece in the book about my landlord coming into the store and seeing the dogs for the first time. And one of my dogs pees all over the floor right when the landlord is standing there. Nice. Your landlord made the dog nervous. Yeah, yeah. So, that yeah, there's that, there's that story in the book. That's one of the funnier parts of the book. Like I said, there are funny stories. There are sad stories. It's everything that happens. Oh, yeah, it's real life. I mean, in, that's, in, you know. In 30 years, you know, there are yeah. nine people die in that book. Mm. You know, I didn't, I didn't know that until Chris BCT who did uh, the bad compilation tapes. Chris read an advanced copy of the book so we could get some promotional blurbs from him. But Chris said, nine people die in this book. And I said, wow, I never counted them, but you're right. Well, in somebody's so, I mean, life, it, yeah. It's ups and downs, you know. It's, it's what, what happened in the last 30 years of my life, friendships, and, and uh, there's a love story in there. There's a there's the beginning of another love story that doesn't go very well in there. And, you know, it's just... It's way more than the music. When the publisher d- agreed to publish this book, he sent me a contract after having only read two chapters. Hmm. And when I went, I said, do you want to read the whole book before you give me a contract? And he said, no, I think it's going to be good. And then when I went out there last August to do the final, final copy, 
I sat down next to him at his desk. We sat side by side, and we're going to read the book word for word. And he goes, i got to tell you, I haven't finished the book yet. I'm only about 40 or 50 pages in, so I don't know what's going to happen. Oh. And I went, oh, I hope you like it. So I, sat there and I read most of the book with him for the first time. He went, wow, this is a really good book. This is a much richer story than I was expecting. And I'm really glad we signed this and we're going to get behind this really hardcore. Nice. And he, he thinks it's going to be their bestseller of this year. Last wow. year, the bestseller was Henry and Glenn. The Henry and Glenn book, if you're familiar with those. So, so that was the bestseller of 2014, 2015. It's all about Crate Digger. And so my guest is Bob Surin, uh, author of Crate Digger. We are WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. My guest is Bob Surin. Bob, are you still there? I am still here. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. So some fabulous picks there. We're going to uh, back announce through them, and I hope you have a little story for each one. Now, um, each of these bands, are they, you said that they are a chapter in the book? Yes, every band that we're hearing today on Diane's show I have written about in the book, and I have um, personal connections to all of these in some way. Oh, good. So, all right, so let's talk about, we just heard uh, Friction from television. Friction, yeah, that's a band that I picked up on a little bit late. That was one of those bands when I first heard them, I thought, this is a little slow, this is a little boring, this is a little artsy. I want DRI. Uh And television was one of those things that I picked up on late, and I put the television chapter in in the book and it's kind of a personal chapter and it's television is the music that i used to listen to when i used to go for long walks by myself and there's a little bit about that in the book Mm. Mm -hmm. awesome so it was your solo walking music my solo walking music yeah that's how i say it in the book uh, Mm -hmm. so obviously after i mean that record came out in 77 so but this was more of an ipod appreciation of that band then right i had the vinyl but I didn't totally fall in love with it until I ripped it to MP3, put it on my iPod, and then when I was in my 40s, I was finally understood the incredible brilliance of television. Those songs are so good, mm. and Friction, I think, is their best one. Mm. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, so before television, we heard from the Reckless Deer Hunters. The Reckless Deer Hunters are a band that um, a lot of people outside of Tampa probably never heard them, because they were a Tampa band that almost never played outside of Tampa. And they were an important band in my life because I was good friends with the singer and guitar player Frank Vagnozzi, who passed away in 2003. Mm. And the Reckless Deer Hunters were an important band to the Tampa scene because they played on and on and on and on for years and years. They played anywhere they could, and they did it just for the love of the music. They never made a penny on that band. And um, when Frank passed away the singer, guitar player, that was a real blow to our lot, to um, our scene. And in a way, it kind of drew a lot of us together. There were a, a bunch of us, uh, I remember a bunch of us one night gathered around hugging each other in the hospital as we watched uh, Frank uh, passing away. Hmm. And so I had to put that Reckless Deer Hunters um, in the book. And uh, every time I get a chance to go on a radio show, 
I like to play one of their songs. That's a perfect fitting tribute. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we heard from Raw Power before that with State Oppression. Raw Power, uh, probably the first foreign hardcore band that I ever heard and a band that I always loved. And in 1998, I got to put on a really awesome show for them in a, in a little pizza parlor just outside of Tampa, Florida. Oh, how that fitting. Was a real, that was just a really cool, fun night. And I think the reason that uh, we got to do it in the pizza parlor is when I went to approach the owner about it, there was this pizza parlor that was doing shows on a regular basis, and I told the owner, would you like to have a band from Italy play here? Nice. <laughs> and boy, was he excited about having an Italian band playing in his pizza parlor. Mm-hmm. It, was just a, it was just a really cool night. Did, yeah. the, did the owner hang around to meet the, the, the native Italians? Yes he, yes, he did. He talked to all of them, and after the show was over, he made a special pizza for them. He had this, this pizza pan that, was, that he only brought out for special occasions that made a pizza that was like the size of a 10-speed wheel. Oh, that's and when cool. the show is when the show is over, he made this giant pizza for Raw Power and me, and he and um, he was very proud when the Raw Power guys gave him the thumbs up on his pizza. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and he invited them back. He said, "Your guys are welcome to play here anytime you want." Nice. And I, I saw Raw Power not long ago in Austin, Texas, mm-hmm. and Morrow, Morrow, the singer of Raw yes. Power, totally remember that night. Mm-hmm. In fact, the, the Raw Power wrote a song about that night at the pizza parlor. If you have their album, uh, trust me, there is a song on that album about the night that Raw Power played in the pizza parlor in Florida. Oh, cool. Yeah, you'll have to check out the album. Yeah, yeah, I will definitely, yeah. definitely yeah. Uh, search that out. Let's see. Um, before Raw Power, Disorderly Conduct with Crawl Down Inside of Me. Disorderly Conduct was a big band in Florida. They were probably the most professional band in the state of Florida at the time. They kind of did this little mix of metal without being too metal and punk, and they did it really well. I think they did it better than any of those hybrid bands. And live, they were just astounding. They just commanded attention. You couldn't turn away from disorderly conduct on stage. And I wrote about disorderly conduct in the book because uh, Casey Chaos, the singer of that band, is a really cool guy that I'm kind of friends with. Mm. And because the bass player of that band, his name was Scott Laid, and Scott Lade was an important guy on our scene besides playing bass in the best band around. Scott Lade was the manager of a chain store in a shopping mall. And as the manager, he could spend the money any way he wanted. And he chose to stock that chain store in the shopping mall with really good punk rock records. You could go in there and buy Detroitson. You could go in there and buy Flex Your Head. You could go and buy their Agent Orange and GBH and the Buzzcocks. And uh, Scott kind of made punk rock his mission just the way i made punk rock my mission and he stocked that chain store with good stuff and if somebody came in there he'd push him in the right direction he was a cool guy wow. and also scott yeah and also scott another really important thing about him is that uh, about once a year he would scrape together as much money as he could and he'd rent out like a vfw hall or a ymca or a lions club and he would do these all ages like three dollar punk rock shows and he did that several times until he just got burned out on um, on losing losing his uh, security deposit. He would rent a place for like 500 bucks and put down a $500 security deposit. And, you know, back in the 80s, punk rockers 
weren't the smartest people in the world. Yeah. And Breaking they would uh, they'd go to a show and they go, oh, this is an awesome show. And then they'd break the toilets. Right. They'd spray paint a wall or something like that. And then Scott would be out of his money. And then it would take him another year to come up with money and hmm. take him another year to get over the disappointment. And then he'd put on another show. And after the kids screwed him over five or six times, he just said, forget this. I'm not doing any more DIY all-ages shows. But wow. he really tried really hard. And he... Um, he was a very influential person to our scene. He was a very key figure, and I wrote that chapter in the book as a tribute to him and to Casey. We we're both really cool guys. Oh, that's cool, and, and he showed quite a bit of perseverance, like, you know, still doing it over and over again until eventually. I mean, yep. But that's what he, keeps yep. the scene together, yeah, too. Yeah, till he reached the breaking point. He tried his hardest to make a punk rock scene happen in our part of Florida, and unfortunately there were a few rotten apples who... Um, who just burned them out. And just after a while, he's just like, forget it. Mm. Like, I'm tired of putting up hundreds of dollars and all this work into something that it's going to be a three or four hour show and it's going to end with a broken window. So there's a little lesson to be learned from that chapter if you pick up the book and read it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, And before that, a band that I know that you were in Failure Face with uh, Human Cancer. Failure Face was the first serious band I was in. It was not the first band I was in, but it was the first band that I was in that people actually liked. And, man, was I surprised when Failure Face took off. When we recorded that Failure Face record in April of 1993, I left the studio not knowing if I'd made a good record or not. I didn't know. I, I was you know, too close to the project to tell. It was one of those forest for the trees kind of things. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know if we made a good record until we went home and the drummer goes, this is awesome. <laughs> and then as soon as the record came out, people started buying it and it started getting good reviews and we started getting good shows. And Failure Face only lasted three years, but it's what a lot of people remember me from. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I think the lyrics to that song, Human Cancer, I think those are the best lyrics I ever wrote in my life. And I believe I was 24 years old at the time. What's it about? It is about a, a, co- a codependent uh, relationship. Mm. Yeah. Very good. And, uh, and then we started that set with Hated Youth with I'm Stupid. Hated Youth was, Hated Youth was kind of this mystery band from uh, Tallahassee, Florida. And they, in their lifetime, they only appeared on a compilation called We Can't Help It If We're From Florida. They had three songs on this compilation. And I and possibly hundreds of other people said, this band is awesome. What else did they do? And I wrote an article online saying, boy, there was this band from Tallahassee, and they had three songs on this compilation that rocked. And, man, what else did they do? And one day... The singer of Hated Youth walked into my record store and said, Hi, I'm Gary. I was the singer of the band Hated Youth. And he handed me a tape with, with uh, ten more songs on it. Nice. And we, li- we listened to it in my record store. And I said, This stuff is great. Can I make, this? Can I make a record out of this? Can I put this out? And he went, Why? Who would care? It was 17 years after the band broke up. And he still had this old cassette tape. And he said, I just thought you'd like to hear it. I said, I did like to hear it, but... I would much more like to put it out on my record label. And he said, well, you know, it's your money. And I put it, I, you know, I, I put it out, and it went on to be one of the, the label's most popular titles. Wow. Yeah. That's so, that's so great. You, I mean, everywhere it's like you give people opportunities. And, uh, and still, like, you know, um, in your book, 
it's it's a very generous book in that you're telling the story of your life, but you are talking about many, many, many records. So people get mentioned again. Like there's bands in here that you just don't don't know or don't remember, and uh, and it's great to sort of point them out again and uh, and to have them as part of your uh, of like the weaving of your life story through through the book. And uh, and it's I, cool. That's really cool that you put out. The Hate a Youth record, and he's like, "Oh, it's your money." Like, yeah. <laughs> but I that... wrote I wrote about the big and obvious bands like the Dead Kennedys and Black Flag and the Ramones, but I also wanted to give some praise and some recognition to some of these bands that never got their due, mm-hmm. like Hated like Hated Youth and Gay Cowboys and Bondage, and Slap of Reality. Some of these bands that, unless you're at a very specific place at a very specific time, they don't exist to you. Right. So unless you grew up in, in, in um, Tallahassee in 1983, you might not have known about Hated Youth, but I think they're a, a cool band, and I want other people to know about them. It's all For me, it's all about spreading the music and also about spreading the knowledge. You know, when Gary came into my store and he played that Hated Youth tape for me, I thought the music is really important, but also he sat down and he told me the entire history of the band and I thought this information is important, too. People need to know all of the facts about this band. I always, you know, I'm very interested in the history of hardcore and not just in the tunes. And mm-hmm. that's kind of another reason why I wrote this book, because there is a hidden history, and I wanted it to be out there, and I wanted it to be preserved before it, it, it's lost forever. Oh, and so, so like, you're a historian. Yeah, like the story of the two bands from Florida called F. Mm-hmm. And people ask me about that all the time. What's up with these, this band from Florida called F? So there were actually two bands from Florida called F, so there are two chapters in the book about the band's F. And I got a little feedback from that. One of the guys told me that I went way too easy on one of the band members who he, he has a disagreement with. One of the guys said, oh, man, you should have really slammed this guy, and you didn't. One of the other band members told me that I handled it very fairly and very even-handedly, and one of the other band members told me a completely different crazy version of the story that I had never heard before. So the story of F is so twisted and bizarre, and the book (laughs) at least gets it partially right. And I think there should be a documentary on this band called F, even if you've never heard of them. It's a fascinating story. Wow. Yeah. And yeah, it's 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 great that you're bringing bands to to light to, especially people that are not in, from the from the region. Um, and yeah. I'm noticing in the book that most of the photos, or at least half the photos in the book, were taken by you. So yes, I used to think it was important to again. It goes back to uh, documenting a scene. Mm-hmm. I used to at one time try to bring my camera to every show I went to. And at some point, I lost my camera or got broken or I or forgot about it. But in the early days, I used to bring my camera to every show. That's really kind of how I got involved. And it really was a photograph that I took of a band that changed my life. There's a chapter in the book by a band called Slap of Reality. Mm-hmm. And just by taking a photo of this band, Slap of Reality, it led me to meet a person who became my best friend and my bandmate and something of a punk rock mentor to me. And he's the guy who invited me to come to Tampa. And he's the one who gave me the idea of opening a record store. Wow. Just just if I hadn't brought my camera to that show, my life could have turned out very differently. Mm. 
Yeah. And did you do um, some of your photography is on the um, the covers of a lot of the uh, your releases too? Yeah, some of my photos are also in some of the records I put out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, in some other records, I've had some of my photos have shown up on other bands titles as well. Yeah. Hey, did you um did you have a um a shorter chapter that you could read for the listeners? I have a chapter that's maybe about four minutes. Is that too long? No, that's fine. That would be okay. perfect. I think that'd I'm gonna be great. have to uh, put the phone down okay. so that I could read into read into the phone. Okay. But this is a chapter. It is um it's kind of the crux of the book. I think I'm gonna read <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm going to read this chapter about MDC. Mm. The band MDC. This is what I consider one of the key chapters in the book. Is my volume still okay? Yes, it is. Okay. I've been listening to punk rock for less than a year when a guy in my neighborhood let me borrow the first MDC album. It was a shock. Maybe unnerving is the right word. As MDC singer Dave Dichter said in the American Hardcore documentary, it was a big jump from the Ramones and Hey Ho, Let's Go to MDC's Dead Cops, Dead Cops. It was far more radical than even the Dead Kennedys' fractured take on rock and roll, far more intense than the Circle Jerk snarky Chuck Berry on fire outbursts. I listened to the album on headphones, knowing damn well this was one I could not possibly explain to the folks. They were okay with the Ramones. They even liked a few songs. But how do you explain millions of dead cops? The lyrics pummeled me. It seemed like Dave Dichter was yelling right in my face, and he seemed so sure of what he was yelling. The lyrics that especially unnerved me was, and there's no God in heaven, so get off your knees. My parents raised me Catholic. I was young and sheltered. I thought everyone believed in God. What was this? A brain bomb. I listened to the album a few times, made a tape copy, and returned it. I recall sneaking the record out of my house, tucked under my shirt. Could not let Mom see that one. Nope. The first few times I listened to my tape, I was still in shock at the lyrical directness, coupled with the musical sledgehammer of this mighty band at their peak. I have never stopped listening to this album. All these years later, there are still times it catches me off guard and gives me the chills. Twenty years after that first spin, I sent an email to Dave Dichter, telling him what a powerful effect the album had the first time I heard it. He never responded. But a few months later, Dave called to see if I'd buy some MDC CDs for the store. Yes, of course. Then I mentioned that I let bands play in my record shop and that if MDC were ever in the area, I'd love to do a gig for them. Dave said, okay, let's do that. How about April? We got to work and found MDC three Florida dates, Miami, Brandon, and Daytona. They flew into Miami, rented a car, drove from gig to gig, and flew back home. The gig at my shop was a big deal. Every band in town wanted to play, so we made it nine local bands with MDC headlining. The place was packed. I was sitting behind my drum kit, taking a break between songs, when this older guy squeezed his way through the crowd, wiggled his way right up to my drum kit, leaned over, extended his hand, and said, Bob, I'm Dave Dichter. My face lit up. We shook hands, and I announced into my microphone, All right, MDC is here. The crowd went nuts. After my set, I stood outside and talked to Dave for a little while. His eyes were piercing, as brilliant as his music. He's a very funny, very smart guy, too. He mentioned liking an article I'd written for a magazine. I was surprised that he even saw it. After another band or two, MDC took the stage, and from the first note to the last, it was pure energy. 
I'd seen MDC six years earlier in San Francisco with a different lineup, and they were terrible, easily the most disappointing thing I'd ever seen. I could not believe I walked out on MDC, but man, they sucked that night. Not so that sweltering day in Brandon. They were focused and flawless. As MDC blasted through business on parade, I thought of the ironic juxtaposition, the most radical band in the world playing in the back of a record store in a strip mall on the main drag of suburbia. Just a couple hundred feet away, SUVs and luxury cars whizzed by on State Road 60 to the Brandon Mall, Best Buy, and Outback Steakhouse. It was perfect. Dave Dichter was a preacher, spewing forth fire and brimstone politics to lazy, complacent, comfortable, middle-class kids who needed some intellectual shaking up. By the time the band got to dead cops, the crowd was churning in frenzy. The audience shouted the chorus in a way that was almost as unnerving as the first time I'd heard this refrain on headphones back in high school. I could not help smiling as I sat on the PA watching the fervor. This was one of those serendipitous, affirming, self-actualizing moments when it felt like I was doing exactly the right thing with my life. Nice. So that is but one chapter out of Crate Digger. My guest, Bob Surin. That is his book. It is on uh, microcosm publishing, and um, that's that is the website that I'm looking at. But I and everybody can be your friend on Facebook too. Uh, his last name is spelled S U R E N. And uh, did you have any second thoughts? You said that you that the last time you had seen MDC, they were terrible, but yet you booked them for a gig. I just knew it was MDC, and I hoped for the best. And when they showed up, they were great. The very that time that I saw them in San Francisco with some other lineup, and Dave admittedly was not in the best of shape mm-hmm. mentally and physically, and um, it, was, it was a scab lineup. And when they played um, that time in Brandon, boy, they had it together. And then they played a couple of more times. They, Brandon is a, a small town, man. It's just a little suburb. And MDC came back again and again. They ended up playing that same spot three times <laughs> over the years. And every time they played, it was a huge turnout. Every time they played, they were fantastic. And every time, Dave said, what a great group of kids. And he said to me, he said, you have these kids trained right. <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 yeah, that's what he said. And, you know, the, the running joke at Sound Idea was how disgusting my bathroom was. But before MDC came, I cleaned the bathroom. And Dave Dichter went in there and goes, that's the cleanest bathroom I've seen on this whole tour. I'm sure other people, <laughs> other people, so probably, funny. Other people probably commented that, oh, you cleaned the bathroom for MDC. Oh, yeah. I think we cleaned the bathroom about eight times in 14 years. Ooh. And one of, the, one of the times we cleaned it was for MDC because they are royalty. Wait, but didn't you say you had like 600 shows in 14 years? I did something like over 600 shows in 14 years, and that bathroom never got clean. Oh, oh, wow. You had to wear like a body condom in that place. Oh, I tell you, one time this woman came into my store with a a child, and she said, can we please use your bathroom? It's an emergency. And I said, sure, it's back there. And she went into the store with her little kid who who had to go to the bathroom, had to poop her pants or something. She ran to the bathroom, and Mm -hmm. a few minutes later, they come walking out, and she's holding the child's hand, and they're walking really briskly. And the woman gives me this really stern, scowly look, and she goes, thanks a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, hey, I I didn't have to let you use the bathroom. I'm sorry. It's it's not what you have. Sorry it's not the Ritz. Get your your own bathroom. Yeah, sorry, it's not the Four Seasons, but yeah, that's funny. It's, it's punk, yeah. 
It is. So you uh, and how is it? I mean, you're talking about how the tour is going and all that. Is it comfortable for you to? I mean, and you did say how hard you worked on the book, but is it? I'm sure it's fun. But at the end of the day, when you're just doing this tour, I shouldn't have put the word just in because I'm not trying to diminish. It's like this is uh-huh. sort of the culmination of all your life experiences in some way put on put into print. So you're reading to people and you're connecting with people and they're buying your book and you're doing well with it. Like, is it, it OK? Yeah. Is it OK with you for it to be almost effortless? It feels good. It feels like I'm doing the right thing, and people mm. seem to appreciate it. And yeah. I didn't know if I was going to be good at it. Really, I, I did one spoken word in Florida something like 16 months ago, and I was so nervous, and I was fatigued from a long drive, and I read some of the really heavy emotional chapters out of the book, which was a real mistake because mm. I was falling apart on stage. Um, on this tour... The first show of this tour is really the first time I ever did a spoken word, and I thought, man, I hope I can do this without uh, falling apart. I hope I can hold the audience's attention. I hope it's not boring. I hope I don't go too long or too short. And the first night was just through the roof, and I thought that was a real big confidence booster. I said, well, I can do this. And so far, every night has gone really well. Last night, I was in a crowded bar in Charleston, South Carolina, so the people who paid attention to me really dug it. Most of the people were there to get drunk. So I was shouting over, you know, glasses and people laughing and talking and stuff. But the people who were close enough to the stage really liked it. I think every person who caught the second set bought a book from me. And I think when I did the first set, I did two sets yesterday. I did a 6 o'clock p.m. set to about 10 people, and about six of them read a book. And then at the 10 o'clock set, only about three people paid attention to me, but they all bought books. But that was the, as far as book sales and as far as people paying attention to me, that was the worst show of the tour. Besides that, it's been going really well. On the other dates of this tour, we've had between 25 and 50 people every night, and it seems like about 50% of the audience every night buys a book for me. Mm. And Well, you yeah. said last night was at a bar, too. Last night was at a bar. Yeah, so it might be a little bit distracting. I'm mostly doing record stores and bookstores on this tour. Mm, How was was the Criminal Records in Atlanta? Criminal Records ended up being really good. Mm -hmm. It was kind of a small crowd, but almost everybody there bought a book from me. Some people bought more than one book. Some people said, my friend could have come tonight. Can I buy two? Of course you can buy two. Yes. The Criminal criminal Records show started about 30 minutes late. I was standing around going, this is going to be a spinal tap moment. Oh. You know, I'm, I'm going to be sitting here by myself at the in-store, you know, waiting for people to show up. But then, you know, 20 minutes after the event was supposed to start, people started walking in. I went, oh, it's good. good. And it ended up being, um, there were like maybe like eight people who came specifically to see me. And then there were maybe another dozen people in the store shopping for records who just decided to walk over and watch the rest of the set. So maybe I had 20 people watching me in Atlanta and maybe I sold 12 or 14 books in Atlanta. Hmm. So it's good. You know, I figured out my expenses for this tour. I have to sell like two books a day to put gas in the car and three books a day if I want to eat a meal too. Right. And it's, it's been way better than that every night. That's cool. And yeah. who are you finding is your audience? It's a lot of people my age. 
who have similar experiences, and it's a lot of younger people who weren't there but want to know. Hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's a nice mix of the two. Last night tended to be an older crowd. When I did Tampa and St. Petersburg, it tended to be people 10, 15 years younger than me who want to know what it was like in the 80s and the 90s. Cool. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And now um, for yourself, I mean, I know that you're, you've, you've kind of purged a whole lot of stuff. Do you have a huge MP3 collection? Like, from... I do. I do. Mm-hmm. I have an external hard drive that's about half full. I've got like 70,000 MP3s on it. So mm-hmm. if there's something I want to hear, I probably have it. There, I copied almost everything I wanted before I dumped everything. And it's there if I need it. And I don't need to own the physical item anymore. At one point, it was very important for me to have a physical archive. You know, people used to call me up sometimes and go, hey, do you have the third Dravit Cadet record? Yes. Can you go look and see what year it came out? Okay. And then I'd go over to my record collection, <laughs> look through it, and pull it out. 1984. Anything else you need to know? You know, it's like a, a reference librarian. Right. Cool. But I don't, I don't need to do that anymore. You know, all that information is online. And mm-hmm. I have the songs on my iPod, which is the important thing. When, if I feel like listening to Turvite Cadet, I can turn on Turvite Cadet whenever I want. I'm looking at Turvite Cadet right now. Oh, do we have a Turvite Cadet song on the, on the I, list? No, actually we don't. But I, I okay. just have a, uh, I have the Lapin Helvetti that's in the FM New bin that I pulled and hadn't oh. played yet. Which I made. One of the best, one of the best bands ever. Yeah. 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 Super, super. Um, all right, so do you want to, um, maybe we'll do another quick set of music and uh, come back and kind of wrap things up. I do want to uh, let the listeners yeah. know, and, you know, my listeners are everywhere. So tonight you are in, what day is this? Tonight um, I'm in Raleigh, Raleigh, North Carolina at Sorry State Records at 8 o'clock p.m. And Tomorrow night I am at Chop, Chop, Suey. Suey Bo- Chop Suey Books in Richmond, Virginia at seven o'clock and the day after that i'm at crooked beat records in washington dc at five o'clock and if you want to know the rest of the tour schedule follow me on facebook or go to microcosmpublishing.com and do a search for crate digger or do a search for bob surin and they have an information page there with all the latest tour information yeah and you're going all over the place so uh yeah that that should be it should be a lot of fun um, oh, it's been, a, it's been a blast so far. I can't believe what a great time I'm having on this tour. Bob Surin, you there, sir? Still here, Diane. Fantastic. We are uh, just about to wind things up here, but I have a qu- couple of questions for you, and then, of course, I want to back announce. A listener wants to know if um, if they buy the Kindle version, will you get, uh, do you, do you get paid for the Kindle version of Crate Digger? Yes, I do. I get paid whether you buy the paperback or whether you buy the Kindle. Good. And even though the Kindle is, is cheaper, I actually make more money when you buy the Kindle because I get a higher percentage of royalties from the Kindle. Oh, very so, yeah, good. Buy, buy whatever you like. I get paid either way. I didn't write this book for money. I wrote this book because there was a bunch of stories I wanted to get out of me, it's a bunch of things that I wanted to have recorded before I forget them. And the fact that I haven't made any money on it yet except for the books I've sold on tour, but eventually I'll get royalty checks from the publisher. But really, that is secondary to me. I really wrote this book for people to read it. And I've been, whenever I can, I've been dropping off copies at libraries. So I don't care if you buy it or if you read it at the library. I just want people to read it. There are uh, three copies at the public library system in Austin, Texas. 
there will be one copy at the University of Florida in Gainesville where I went to school, and there should be three copies in the Hillsborough County, Florida library system. That's where Tampa is. Um, and if I find any other libraries on tour, I'll drop some books off there, too. When I'm in Washington, D.C., I'm going to see if I can get my book into the Library of Congress. That would be really cool. I bet, I bet you can. What, what's the, did you, like, show up to the library? I've, I've never, you know, I've never published a book, so I've never. Uh, for, in that. Austin, I went up to a librarian and said, hey, I wrote the, this book, and I live here in Austin. I want my friends to be able to find it on the shelves. And I said, thank you. And uh, at the University of Florida, I have a friend who works in the library department. I gave her a book, and I said, do whatever you have to do to get this on the shelves. And I, it's in processing. And in Florida, I have a friend who's a librarian, and he came to one of my gigs in Florida, and I gave him three copies of the book. And I said, I want this one to go to the Brandon Regional Library. I said, I want this one to go to the Seminole Heights Library. And I said, I want this one to go to the downtown Tampa Library. Those are three branches that I like to use when I live there. Wow. So that's, where I want the, that's where I want them to be. Perfect. Yeah. Neat. I'm a big fan of the library system. I try to go to the library once a week. I try to read a book once a week. I usually go every Thursday morning, and I try to return the book the following Thursday morning. I give myself a whole week to read a book. And I think the library system is about one of the best things about living in the United States. And it's a thrill for me to be able to have my books in some of these fine libraries. Mm. That's very, very neat. You know, reading, the art of reading is, uh, is lost on, on quite a lot of people nowadays. So it's great that, um, that this book is entertaining in its own way and that you're doing a tour with it also. So um, you are going to be tonight in Raleigh at Sorry State Records, tomorrow in Richmond at Chop Suey Books, and I'm going to read the rest of the dates after Bob is off the air. Um, I want to do a little bit of back announcing here. The last song was Dead Kennedy's Stealing People's Mail. Is there a Dead Kennedy's chapter in the book? There is a Dead Kennedy's chapter in the book. That Dead Kennedy's album, Fresh Fruit for Rotting Vegetables, uh, that Stealing People's Mail appears on, that's the first punk rock record I ever bought. So that was a milestone for me. Oh, wow. And when, when I went to, I, when I first got into punk rock from that magic mixtape that I talked to you guys about in the beginning of the show, the band that really stuck out for me was the Dead Kennedys. And I remember going into a record store with money in my pocket determined to buy a Dead Kennedys record. Hmm. And when I saw one in real life for the first time, I said, well, that's, that's obviously what I have to spend my money on today. Nice. That was the first record I bought. That was a big moment for me. Very that's a big moment for everybody, that, that yeah. particular record, yes. And then uh, yeah. before Dead Kennedys, Attaque Frontal. Attaque Frontal was a band from Peru, and that was the first band I ever heard from Peru. They, no, they weren't the first band I heard from South America. The first band I heard from South America was Olo Seco. But I really got into foreign hardcore when I was in college, and I was going through this mail-order catalog, from a place in New Jersey called Forefront Records. And Forefront Records had the original Attack Frontal record. And it said Hardcore from Peru or Furious Hardcore from Peru or something. And I went, wow, I never heard of a band from Peru. And I bought that record for $3 because I wanted to know what Peruvian hardcore sounded like. And I think the Attack Frontal record is probably the meanest record ever made. Mm -hmm. And I copied that over and over and over again over the years. And at some point, 17 years after the original record came out, I tracked down the band and got permission to do a reissue of that Attack at Frontal record, and my reissue came with additional packaging and one extra song. Uh -huh. so that was, and, and then in 2006, I went to Peru, 
and I met the guitar player, and he told me all about the band in person, and he ended up being a really cool guy, and then he passed away, I believe, in 2009 or 10. His name was Jose, and he passed away, and there's a long story in the book about him, and what a strange and... Um, yes strange character he is he liked to tell a lot of people to f off mm-hmm. <laughs> that, was like, that was like his catchphrase if you oh, read good. that chapter he tells me to f off he tells the guy at a museum to f off mm-hmm. and at one point he, t- he tells a catholic priest to f off oh wow. so yeah get the get the book and read all about jose eduardo matute uh, the late uh, guitar player of attack frontal and my experiences working with him <laughs> and 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 it's great though that you decided you wanted to put that record out. Was was their attitude um, the same as uh, oh, hated youth? Like, well, it's your money, or uh... um, no? The the only guy I dealt with in the band was Jose, and he was um, a little bit arrogant about his band. Um. They were very. They're a historical band. They're a very important band to Peruvian hardcore. But dealing with him, he really saw their place in history as being way more important than it was. Wow. And I, I think they were an important band, but he thinks they were even more important than they were. I was like, hey, you guys were a minor threat of Peru, but Peru's a very small country. Mm-hmm. And, I want to, and I want to introduce you to the rest of the world. And he is the only musician I ever worked with who demanded money for me to put out his music. Mm. And we went back and forth on that for a long time before I finally did agree to, to pay him not quite all the money he was asking. We came to a compromise. But it was, it was the first time I ever dealt with the kind of personality where somebody is like, I want to get paid. And yeah, musicians do have the right to get paid, but it made me... It made me a little bit uncomfortable because I'm working on a very shoestring DIY level. Of course. And yeah, I felt a little bit put out by that, but I also knew that that music was vital and I wanted to give it new life. So we found um, a compromise and he did get uh, 60% of what he asked me for initially. Mm-hmm. Well, but what, I mean, that's just uh, the thing that I see about you is that you really, it's, it is all about the music and and I I read the book and I and I kind of know how that chapter goes and it's like wow man you've got perseverance like you know <laughs> yeah you know oh, I put up with a lot to make that record happen mm-hmm. you'll have to buy the book and read the chapter it was it was a very aggressive personality I had to deal with to get that attack a frontal record but out but then you got but a know- lot but a lot of people told me they like it so well, it was worth all the all the Headaches. Well, and you got an amazing chapter for the book. I mean, yeah, it's really one, it's a that was very one of the sample colorful. chapters I sent around to publishers when I was looking for yeah when I was looking for a publisher for a home for my book. I sent out the Attaque Frontal chapter, and I believe I sent out the chapter about the band F from Florida, which was the first punk mm-hmm. concert I ever went to. Those were the things that I sent out that I thought were the strongest writing in the book. Uh huh. Yeah. I mean, really, really great, great story, which is great. It's like, well, Jose, yeah. may he rest in peace. But like, wow. You know, it's pretty... My goodness. Yeah, yeah. What a, awesome. what a character he was. And then one of the other guys from the band got back to me. The drummer from Attack A Frontal got back to me a year or two after that Attack A Frontal record came out and goes, this is some other band that I'm in. Do you want to put it out? And I listened to it and I didn't like it. 
And mm. I said, well, you know, I'm not really that into it or whatever. And he goes, he was really mad. He was like, well, I figured since I was in attack at Frontal, you'd want to put it out, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, I sent you a CD. Now you send me a CD. Wow. <laughs> wow. So, Hanging around like, Jose for too long. Yeah. So I don't know if that's part of the Peruvian national um, personality or whatever, but the two people from Attaque Frontal that I dealt with were very aggressive. Interesting. Well, you did yeah. say, you said that it's the meanest music you ever heard. And Attaque Frontal, yeah, it's the meanest record I ever heard. I yeah. describe it to people as a cross between a DRI and SOA sung in Spanish. Nice. Yeah. Sounds like that SOA No Policy EP. Right. Sung sung in Spanish, man. If you could imagine Spanish Rollins, how angry that would be. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. When you say Spanish Rollins, I want to see him doing like those little little finger clicker things. I forget what they're called. But, you know, that's... Oh, I'm having a good time, Diane. What else do we have? Oh, good. This is a a fun interview. Well, so tell us about Cult Ritual that you played before with Weak Body. Cult Ritual was a band from my hometown of of Tampa, Florida, or Brandon, more specifically. Those kids were from the Brandon, Tampa area. And they were just a local band. And I watched them play a show, and I went, wow, this band is really good. Then I watched them a couple more times, and I even invited them, but they didn't know this, but I invited them to play a show, which was basically an audition for Burrito Records. I wanted to make sure they were really that good. And after I watched this band play two or three times, I asked them to put out a record. And they said yes. And then after that, we had a little bit of a bumpy period, and then things got smoothed over. So there's a chapter in the book about my relationship working with Cult Ritual. And um, I talked to all those guys now, and we're all cool. But there was a little period of time there where Cult Ritual got to be a really popular band and I believe it went to their heads a little bit. You know, they were popular, but they were punk rock DIY popular, which in the grand scheme of things doesn't mean that much. Right, right, exactly. But, uh, they were young kids. They were like 18, 19 years old, and all of a sudden people were kissing their butt. And, yeah, I think it blew them up a little bit, and I think that's ultimately what destroyed the band. Mm. And since then, those guys have all settled down, and those guys are all um, humble now and... And I talked to all of them, and I've seen all of them recently, and they're all really cool people. Hmm. Well, and you, and, you know, you you do see that. You yeah. know, it is it is sort of funny. I I had uh, I had Dave Smalley on um, probably a couple of years ago now, and I asked him like if his kids like get where he is in the scheme of things. He's like, yeah, they get who I am in the scheme of things, and they know that punk rock is no big deal. Like I've got a regular job, you know. And that really is it. It's like, you know, he's somebody who's you would think is in a whole bunch of bands and doesn't really need to work for a living. He's like, no, I have a family. It's, yeah. you know, you just, you got to do it. But it it is a funny uh, perspective that, uh, that, that people can get themselves into. And then um, yeah. please tell us about um, your choice down at the Rock and Roll Club, Richard Hell and the Voidoids. That was the first song of that last set. I think that is just, such a swinging song. That's my favorite song on that Richard Hell album. And there's a chapter in the book about how I was so insane about collecting records and I had to figure out how to get more records. And I came up with this notion of putting on record conventions. So I did 35 record conventions over the course of like 10, maybe 12 years. Wow. And basically I would just say, 
it's buy, sell, trade. It doesn't cost anything. Just show up, bring your boxes of records, bring your cash, and let's buy, sell, and trade some punk rock records. And my ulterior motive was to build up my record collection. And that was the idea. It was like, do something to bring records to me. And it worked because <laughs> sometimes people who never came to my record store would show up at these record conventions with like SSD records mm. or Iron Cross records or things that uh, I wasn't going to find. And it was that, you know, what's that Kevin Costner movie, Fields of Dreams, where they say, if you build it, they will come. That yes. was my idea. It's like, if I put on a record convention, the records will come to me. And it's true. That's what happened. So that's what that chapter in the book is about, about how I was so obsessed with records. I had to find a new way to collect. And, and so what is it like for you now, having been obsessed with records for so long, not being obsessed with records? I'm clean. I, the monkey is off my back. I, um, you'll have to read the book, but there's, there was a, a huge personal crisis in my life, and then I eliminated everything in my life except for the bare essentials. And on May 29, 2013, I left the United States of America with six pairs of clothing and a laptop computer with the intention of never returning to the United States again. Wow. I want to disappear in Central America. I wanted to cut off contact with everybody I knew and start a new life and have a clean slate and have nothing to do with music and see what else the world had to offer. I wanted to see what existed outside of punk rock, and I didn't know what would happen to me, but I thought, I'm just going to go with this. And if you've ever had the notion of starting over with a clean slate, maybe you've romanticized about it, I actually did it, and it didn't turn out the way I expected and I wasn't really happy with that. So I did end up returning to the United States, but I'm still, I still am not immersed in punk rock as I once was. Punk rock at one time was my entire life, and I believe that it, it caused a bit of ruination for me. These days, I'm kind of a spectator. These days, I'll go to a show if it's a cool show, if some of my friends are going to be there and I want to hang out with my friends between bands. But I'm not getting caught up in record collecting anymore. In fact, I don't want anything anymore. If people give me a knick-knack or a book, I don't want it. Somebody gave me, the other day, somebody at the show in Atlanta gave me this wedge of cheese hat like the Green Bay Packers fans wear. <laughs> and it, it's, it's just taken up a bunch of room in my trunk. And when I get to Washington, D.C., I'm going to try to give it to Ian MacKay. And nice. if, uh, if Ian MacKay won't take the cheese hat from me, I'm just going to throw it out. And somebody in Washington, D.C. wants yeah. that cheese hat. Okay. And on this tour, I've been given two books by other authors, and I intend to read them and then donate them to the library. And on this tour, I've been given about seven demo tapes. And when I get home, I'm going to give them to a friend of mine who likes demo tapes. So still, all I own in this world is a bunch of clothing and a laptop computer, and I have since purchased a car. But I really like this no-frills, only-the-necessary-possessions and it's, it really is a nice feeling to be unencumbered by material things. Hmm. And I know that sounds like, like I live on a mountain or something and I, I wear a brown robe, but um, it's really a nice feeling to just not have a bunch of junk. I stayed at this house a few nights ago. It was a fantastic house, huge house, just every inch of this house just jam-packed with curios. And I thought, this, what a fantastic house. This looks like a museum but it's not the life I want. 
Mm-hmm. It's perfect for you, and I really enjoyed visiting here. I'm really glad that I don't have a bunch of knickknacks, and I don't have a shelf full of books, and I don't have thousands and thousands of punk records anymore, and I don't have a guitar anymore. I really like that. Mm. Yeah. What a, it's what really, a it's contrast. Liberating. Yeah. It's liberating. Yeah. I can hear that in your voice, that you're really, and you're yeah. kind of quiet about it like it's still it, you're still discovering it yeah. you know which which yeah. is really beautiful and we're we're all allowed to make we make choices in our lives some work for us some don't so you start again and i think that uh you sound like you're in a really really good place and you've got a great book with crate digger here so thank I would, you very much oh you're most welcome and thank you for coming on the show i would highly recommend the book folks crate digger um and I'm going to, at the end of the show, I'm going to announce the, uh, the the dates. It is a wonderful document and a wonderful story. So thank you for that. Best of luck with the tour. Thanks for coming on the show, Bob. Thanks so much, Diana. means a lot to me. Oh. This is my favorite radio station, and you're my favorite DJ. I always, on, on Facebook, I always mention that Diane Ferris is the queen of rock and roll. I think that's how you should all start addressing her. <laughs> <laughs> you really are. You really know more about about music, and you care more about music than any female I know. Oh, so, well, thank so you. Start calling Diane the queen of rock and roll. I'll take that. I have no problem okay. with that at all. <laughs> I, I think you've. I think you have earned it. <laughs> okay. And thank Bob, you so much for letting me on the show, Diane. Absolutely, and, it's um, my pleasure, Bob. Have a great night tonight, and then I'll see you in a few days. And uh, and again, it's Crate Digger, and it is on uh, Microcosm Publishing, and you can get the Kindle version on Amazon, etc. And uh, thanks, Bob. Thank you very much. Goodbye. All right. Take care. Bye.